Welcome back to the Grief Observed podcast. I'm your host, Brad Morrell. I'm publishing these episodes just as quick as they are recorded generally, and maybe someday I will back them down to once per week, but uh, for now, I'll just keep going through them as quickly as I have someone that wants to be on the show. Um, I think people need to be able to hear these other stories, you know, anything that may seem like their story. Um, So if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. Send me an email and we will make it happen. Um, My next guest is a good friend of mine who not only has experience uh, with multiple losses, but she's also a therapist. Um, I've been looking forward to our discussion today, and I hope you find some connection with her story. And uh, if so, like always, I'll have her email in the show description. So I want to introduce you to my friend, Marsha. Marsha, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. I'm kind of excited to be here. It's nervous to be on the other side, uh, the side of where we usually have our clients at, to be vulnerable and raw, and here I am in that seat. Yeah, yeah, of course, I always say, hey, this isn't counseling, just because I'm a therapist, (laughs) but this is just a podcast, but you're right, it is is a different feeling um, when we expose some of our thoughts and feelings and emotions that you know, a lot of people just don't get to hear about, you know, and I I think there's a misconception too, that therapists have to, you know, have that, uh, stoic face and, you know, we, we can't let others see that we're real people. And I I think that's just a fallacy. So I'm I'm glad you're on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so I'm glad you're here to tell us a little more about, uh, your grief, and, you know, people that you've lost in life. But first, why don't you tell me a little bit about you and uh, maybe about your therapy and what you do? And I don't know, I'll I'll just kind of give it to you and you take it over. Okay, perfect. Um, I actually have probably been a therapist for 20 plus years, Um, probably doing a little bit of all areas of mental health. I have done inpatient, I have done outpatient, which is absolutely my favorite, uh, which I'm currently doing through private practice. I have worked with domestic violence victims. I have worked with eating disorders. I have worked with first responders and military and veterans with PTSD and trauma response. And now I'm working with a lot of anxiety, depression, and grief. And so I really feel that coming on this podcast as a therapist, but as, as you mentioned, as a therapist who has grieved and has gone through losses should know what our process is in our mind when we're going through these things. But however, the human instinct that kicks in and that helped me hopefully to be a better therapist going through these, um, the grief that I will be talking about, as well as, you know, hopefully allowing my clients to know that when I ask them to be vulnerable and raw, here I am sitting in the seat doing what I asked them to do. And one of the deaths that I'm going to be talking about today with you, I actually never speak of it. And Mm. so I questioned, why am I not making myself um, raw on this topic? And so when I found out you were doing this, I could speak about the other two individuals that I openly speak about, I will be talking of three. And I thought, let me go ahead and just 
rip the Band-Aid off, do it all, and talk about for the first time outside of probably 20 people that know about um, this particular death and do it live on a podcast because I really want to reach people and I really want to bring hope and to hold this story in. I feel I'm not doing justice to others that may be going through something similar. Yeah, you, you bring on a great point. And, you know, it kind of goes back to, you know, I think people think that therapists have it all together, that we're untouchable. Um, and that's simply not the case. But I think it's really great when um, we can see our own weaknesses, I guess. And, and I think too, to let people know that, you know, we're not just book smart. And I don't mean that in an in an arrogant way, but we're not just book smart, but we have had some bumps and bruises in our own lives. And I do believe that makes us better therapists. So I'm glad you're, you're sharing. Um, so I don't know where, where do you want to begin as far as, um, I know you've lost three females in your life, right? Yes. Um, and the reason I chose these particular three is, they're the closest to me as well as the distance of time at time frame from the first one to the last two were 10 years and i have noticed such growth in myself and my maturity level with grieving from the first one to the last one the most recent and I feel that as a Gen Xer, uh, we have a lot of great, great traits. But one trait we were not given until we created it ourselves was emotional regulation and emotional intelligence. Hmm. And as I share this story, you'll see how I grow as a person with my emotions and yeah, releasing. Like I like the way you set that up. It's almost like uh, I've already got my my storyboard up in in my mind, and um, <laughs> I, I'm just kind of ready to walk this out with you because it's uh, like you said. You know, a lot of times we discount certain chapters of our life, or maybe we skip over those altogether, and we don't understand. You know, that we are growing. I, I call that in in my office the grandfather theory, when I see these clients come in, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, maybe once a month. And I'm like, I see so much growth in you. And they're like, you do. And I'm like, right. yeah, but I only see you once a week. You know, if you're living with yourself 24 hours a day, so um, it's hard to see that growth, you know, so uh, like a grandchild comes to a grandparent and what's the first thing they say, my, my, how much you've grown. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I, I really feel like um, you you do see growth. And I, I think also looking back at maybe five-year sections, like if I go back five years, I can see some major growth in my life. If I go back one year, sometimes it's a blur. That's a good so. point. That's a good point. I'm not sure I would have noticed until I was asked to be on the podcast and I started you know, rethinking through the deaths and then realizing how I grieved really brought the common denominator together that there was no common denominator. I grieved so differently. So then I leaned into my emotions and processing it to why I did it so differently. 
And there could be multiple reasons, but I think the biggest reason is I have just grown as a human and just more comfortable in my own skin. And I think that takes time. And not that I don't have more growth to go. I certainly do. But I think I have come a long way. And I think certainly as humans, we forget to look behind us at the mountains that we've climbed. Um, we always look ahead at the future mountain and it gets exhausting. And I think we have to look at our history and see where we've come from and where our strength and our history comes from. And that gives us our future hope. If we know we can get through what we got through, we know that we can proceed forward to the new Mount Everest that life provides for us, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of those therapists, I guess I, I create all these analogies. It just, it helps me and I think it helps clients. And one of the analogies I found in a book many, many, many years ago, and it's just kind of followed me, was that, you know, if you're in a car you have a windshield and it's very, very large. And then you've got the rear view mirror, which is very, very small. Both are important. You know, one tells us where we've been. The other uh, tells us where we're going. And sometimes we get those reversed. Sometimes we want to look at, you know, we think our rear view mirror is huge and we've got to stay focused there. But if you stay focused in the rear view, you're going to crash, right? Absolutely. Well, Marsha, I will let you start with your story. Tell me, tell me uh, where you want to go and, and what loss you want to speak of. Um, of the three, I kind of want to talk about the chronological order so you can kind of see where my headspace was and you can see where, I, where I've grown and hopefully um, I can help people. That's, that's my goal as a therapist, as a human, as just an individual here on earth, hopefully leaving wonderful footprints um, for people um, when it's my time to go, that they realize that I left an imprint of some sort of hope on their life. And so the first one that I would like to talk about, which is the one that I mentioned earlier, is the one that I have never spoke about before. So this will be interesting. Um, this is my daughter. Um, my husband and I lost a child, a stillborn. And to give you kind of the backstory before I tell about her loss, it will help you to understand where I was at that time in my life. This occurred 12 years ago, and I was trying for many years after being married to have a family, and I wanted nothing more than to be a mom. That mom word was just so special to me. I had an amazing mom, amazing grandmother. I just, I was a great aunt to my niece and nephew. I wanted to be a mom. And the first year I tried, nothing came of it, you know, and I thought that's okay. It doesn't always happen right away. So then we were going into multiple years. Then we're going into infertility treatments and then came some miscarriages. We had um, seven miscarriages and wow. it just seemed like one loss after another, after another. And being the type A I was being the go getter career oriented person, I was like, I got this, you know, I can research, I can study, I can figure this out. I will, you know, get the best doctor, get the, you know, 
there wasn't challenges that I had put my mind to that I haven't been able to accomplish. Now, it may not have been my my original plan, but somehow I would always accomplish it if I put my effort into it. Infertility is something that humbles you. It's you can't throw money at it. You can. <laughs> uh, we did. But m- having money doesn't make you get pregnant. Having the right. best doctor doesn't have, you know, you have no control. And Marsha, let me let me stop you real quick there and, and just let uh, listeners know, unless it's changed, and I've not looked at it lately, but 25% of all women will have a miscarriage. That was the last number I was given. And to me, that is mind-boggling. And the thing of it is, is I don't know uh, that number, but I believe it. I 100% believe it. And if not, it might be a little larger. And And I'll tell you, women don't typically open up about it. I didn't, you know, it was almost body shaming. Why did my body fail me? Why is this happening to me? I've been, I've kept my body healthy. I was, I did sports. I was an athlete, you know, not a great one, but a consistent one. Why is my body doing this? You know? And so what I started to do when I uh, started having miscarriages is isolated. I did not talk to anyone about my miscarriages, my pregnancy journey, my infertility. It was fear that someone would make their opinion known. It was probably embarrassment, a whole mix of emotions. And we finally um, got pregnant with our daughter and she was a twin and we were just elated but hesitant because of our past. We were like, can we get excited? Can we, you know, this is not going to be a normal pregnancy. Not because what we knew was getting ready to happen because we didn't, but we were with our past history that I talked about, the mountains Everest that we had gone through and walked through. We're like, okay, if something's going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong to us, you know? Um, And so when we found out it was twins, we're like, this is such a blessing. But as you know, in the medical field, twins can bring some medical complications. And so in the first trimester um, with our our twins, the one of them um, deceased and passed. Hmm. So we had one live child and one that did not make it in my womb. And we just kept looking ahead. Okay, we can do this. We can get to the finish line, you know, and we're trying so hard to be motivated that this is the route that we needed. And this is our hope and our, the rainbow child, we call it, you know, after you have a loss and you have a live child, it's, it's called, um, the, the rainbow at the end of the storm. Mm. And I was like, gosh, this is going to be our rainbow child. And, so we keep proceeding forward. I'm going to work. My stomach is growing. I look like, you know, I've swallowed a basketball. And when anyone would ask me, I would say, oh, just jokingly knowing they knew. But I made it clear that I wasn't going to talk about it. So I'd joke and say, oh, no, no, no. I'm eating Twinkies. I just ate a lot of Twinkies, you know, <laughs> and I would walk off. That was my polite way of saying, no, sir, we're not talking about this, you know. And so 
then um, our nightmare did occur. Uh, in the middle of the night, um, I was just feeling uncomfortable. Then I finally went to bed, but just lower back, nothing major, no contract, nothing that would make you think I need to get to the doctor. Just uncomfortable pregnancy. And I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night to my water breaking. And I had this blood curling scream because I knew I was too early to deliver. I knew something was wrong. And that scream, my husband will tell you, he still hears in his nightmare. He woke up and he was like, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know what's happening with the baby. So mm. we jump up and he said, let me, let's, let's get you in the bathroom. So I stood up and little did I know at the time I was having an abruption. And an abruption is when you are hemorrhaging blood and massively and you were at danger the the female carrying and the child as well so both are in extreme distress and so as soon as my my husband was just a hero just all the way around a hero I mean he saw this he jumped into action he got thinking so clearly and grabbing everything we needed and you know and I told him I said I was like I can't lose this one I can't lose this one and her name was Berkeley. And I said, we can't lose Berkeley. We can't. And he said, we're not there yet. This just, you know, this may be something very easy to fix. He kept me positive. He put me in that car so fast. I think my head was spinning. And here we went. And we were getting ready to go toward um, an interstate ramp. And I said, I want to go to the NICU Special Trauma One Hospital near us. And he said, that's 10 extra minutes out of the way, honey, I've got to get you safe. And I said, no, 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 my child's coming first. Please take me to the trauma one. He said, my job as your husband is to protect you and I'm protecting you right now. So he mm -hmm. got me to the closer hospital and he shaved about 10 minutes off um, what the other hospital would have been, 10 to 15 minutes off. And so when we get there, he, he, was calm as a cucumber until he parked and he parked in the ambulance um, loop. And not only did he do that, he parked up on the sidewalk close to the door and ran in. And when he ran in, he asked for assistance in a wheelchair for me. And they were trying to, to find it and, and they were trying to get to me. They were excellent, excellent at this ER. And I couldn't wait. I was like, I've got to save my baby. So here I come. <laughs> waddling out of the car, you know, walking in. And when the ER saw me, I had hemorrhage blood everywhere. I looked like a murder mm. scene. And wow. my later, they said, your husband said you were having a miscarriage. Honey, you're not in a miscarriage. Honey, you're like full blown in crisis. And I said, yes, yes, I am. And it felt like here, the doors open to the ER, a pack of 10 people came running out to me and I had wheelchair gurney. I had, they took care of me and I got whisked back immediately. And I just remember that they worked so fast and they're, like I said, 10 or so in their um, IVs and looking at me and trying to, to save me and save the child. And they said, we are so, um, we just need to change your sheets. And I said, sure. 
So I was not aware what was happening. So they changed my sheets and I had to roll to one side, roll to the other. I'm dizzy. I'm losing a bunch of blood. And then five more minutes later, here they come. They're dressed in different attire, um, protective gear. And they keep changing my sheets. And I look at my husband. And I said, I am all for clean sheets. <laughs> but why on earth are they changing my sheets every five minutes? This is first class service, buddy. What I didn't realize is I had about an inch of blood on the floor. I was soaking through the gurney and everything. And that's why they had to keep me from getting an infection and cleaning everything. They had to gear up in all of the gear that they had to gear up because blood would have been all over them if they would not have protected themselves. And so they informed me, they were like, your daughter is still got a, a strong heartbeat of 160. And we need to ask you, um, in this case, the child typically doesn't live. And in the state of Tennessee, we protect the mother. And we would like to go and do a medical abortion because you will lose your life if we don't take your child. Mm. And what a decision. Wow. Whew, and there is no win-win for any mother that has been in this situation. Whatever decision that they made they had to do it on the fly. They had to do it without processing and thinking. And they had to also know that there, no one wins. There's no win in this situation. And I look at my husband and I just knew for us and for our journey and the journey of, you know, two IVFs, multiple IUIs, years and years of medication, I kept bottles of, of needle syringes to show my live child one day of what I had to go through, not that they would care to get the, to get them. You know, I went through so much and for them to say she had a strong, wonderful heartbeat and she wasn't at that point that she could have been delivered. So we were in a little holding point of she wasn't strong enough to make it outside, but she had, but she was most likely not going to live, but I had to make the choice. And so I just started praying. I just started praying. I said, I, I don't know what else to do at this point. And I just prayed for God to save her and protect her. And a male doctor came in, which was wonderful, but he said, I've got to take you to the OR. I've got to make this decision. I'm so sorry. And he started to pull my gurney out from the ER room. And I said, no, sir, no, you can't. I'm not going to allow you to take my child. And he mm -hmm. said, but then you will die. And I said, I'm okay with that. Wow. And he said, how can you be okay with that? And I said, well, I want her to live. If she can live, I want her to have that right. And so he started to continue to push me. And I remember holding on to the yellow. <laughs> I hate that color yellow now to this day yellow curtain that was in the ER. I held onto it with white knuckles and I said, you will not take me in the OR. My husband grabbed the back of the gurney and he was pulling it toward him, my husband, and he was trying to push me back into the ER waiting, you know, our little room and not the OR. And my husband kept saying she doesn't want to go. And so I said, it's my religious right and my patient right. Please don't take me in the OR. Hmm. And nurses witnessed it and so he put me back and he said I don't know what to do with you 
and I heard them make the call to the morgue. And they said, we have a potential individual female that won't make it. Wow. So here we were. <laughs> I was fighting for my child. My husband was fighting for both of us. It was so, so hard to hear the doctor who had every right to do what he did. He wanted to protect me. And I get that. Not mad at him at all for it. He was actually doing what he was licensed to do. And so this female ER doctor came and she said, I want everyone out of the room. Everyone go now. She cleared the nurses, cleared the OB, doc, male doctor. She cleared everyone. And she took her little stool and she rolled right up to me and she said, I want to talk to you female to female. I said, okay. And she talked to me about the fact that she has gone through something very similar. And she said, I think you're praying the wrong way. And I said, I am. She said, yeah, I think you need to pray because what I'm hearing is you don't want to make the decision. You want God to make it so you don't have that guilt. And I said, yes. And she said, I think you need to change your prayer. And I said, we'll do. We'll do. And so then the, the OB came back in and he said, I can try a few things to stop the hemorrhaging that are not medical um, OR oriented and that would not hurt your baby. And I said, that I will allow. And so um, he did. And he said, I am unfortunately have to transfer you to the labor and delivery floor. And I just kind of looked at him because the last thing, knowing that I'm most likely I'm losing this child, is to go where balloons and flowers and yays and cheers and healthy baby cries and mom smiling and taking pictures. And, you know, I'm like, this is where I'm going. And he explained to me that I eventually will need the, to deliver and eventually will need the equipment on that floor. So I'm like, okay. So little did I know my brother was at the hospital at this time. He disappeared and I'm like, well, where's my brother? So later, as the story unfolds, my brother went up to the labor and delivery floor and talked to them. And he's like, this is not going to be emotionally okay for my sister. Where does she need to go to be away from these new moms and away from hearing the babies cry and the nursery? And they said, we got this under control. There's an empty hallway. We'll put her at the end of the hallway. She will um, not hear, the, hear any, anything else. So here I go and they're moving me. And when I finally got to the labor delivery floor, it felt like it was a mile long. They had me at the end of the longest hallway. I thought I would never get to my room. <laughs> and wow. all the lights were turning on as we were moving down the hallway because they had to isolate me so much because of where I needed to be. But I also what I was going through, they wanted to be very sensitive to that as well. And then I got to meet some of the most amazing nurses, those labor and delivery nurses, shout out to them. I tell you what, all nurses in general, but those labor and delivery, they, they're, they're excellent. And I had two different ones that were on my case as I was there for quite some time. So they did shift. So I had two different ones. One was a younger nurse and one was an older nurse that was a midwife. And so I learned a lot from both. And as we waited, you know, my mother was on her way from Virginia to get to Tennessee to her baby, which was me and her grandbaby, because we were both in distress. And she was 
it left at like four in the morning and my abruption started at like two in the morning. It took us a little while to get a hold of people because no one really was waking up in the middle of the night. Um, we tried, but we just couldn't wake people. And so when she finally got there, we had gotten the news that my daughter had passed and mm. they said, we can do this two ways. You can deliver her, which you could hemorrhage some more. We don't suggest it, but you can see her or we could do a medical abortion. She's gone now. And, you know, and I said, I've come this far. I'm going to go ahead and deliver. And they said, well, you're going to have some ch some medical chance of hemorrhaging again. And I said, I, I want to see her. I want to deliver her in one piece. And they mm. said, okay. And let me let me stop you real quick there, Marcia, and just ask, like, um, you felt that was extremely important. And, and this may be just a little bit further in your story. I may be jumping ahead, but... How important was it for you to see her for your closure? 100%. I had to see her. I You have to say hello before you can say goodbye. Mm, very good. Yeah, yeah. And the midwife nurse, the older one, was she had seen a lot in her years. And she talked to me and she said, it is completely your choice. But what would you like to do? And I said, I really, I don't know. And I said, but I, I want to see her. And she said, okay, that's what we'll do. And my brother later, um, he told me that he went outside. And when she, the nurse left the room, he went outside and talked to her. And he said, I'm concerned about my sister's well-being seeing her child that she of course thought she would see alive which she's not going to be able to and all the future that she saw in this child seeing her and holding her and that's when the nurse said you have to say hello before you can say goodbye mm, very so, wise yeah yeah so that was not my wording that was hers but I it stuck with me and so after we did lose her we decided to do the 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 birth and do it natural and and everything because at this point I potentially would have to go in the OR for hemorrhaging and they needed to ensure they could get me in there quickly etc so I do deliver her and we had her baptized and they went and they created a package for me they had a volunteers for the hospital that did blankets and things for stillborns and they brought her back and they said, are you ready to see her? Um, and they did talk to me about what I would see so I could be prepared. Mm. And, you know, it's different than a live child. And they talked to me about the coloring. They talked to me about the body. They talked to me about keeping the hat on due to um, the birth canal and the, and the brain closures and fun stuff of that nature. And I said, okay, I'm ready. And I was told soon as I held her in my arms that I started rocking because mm -hmm. it's such a natural response when you hold a child you want to soothe and so my husband and I were going through the worst time of our life and we just wanted her to be soothed and loved and of course baptized when she was born and we named her 
And we had to then, um, once I was discharged, um, go and pick out a plot for your child, which is something which we had the future of her, you know, being a, a spelling bee champion or a soccer player. And here we are now just picking a plot out for her. And wow. so it's not something I ever want anyone to ever have to do. But unfortunately, there's a large number of us that do. Um, it's not the club you want to be in, but here we are. And so I wanted to try to do it with as much grace and class that I could do, um, with the knowledge that I had at the time. So we did a service and I remember that I only allowed a very private service. I did not allow anyone to come. I didn't have that extra support system. This goes back to my learning and grieving and my path. And I went right back to work right after I buried, I went right back to work. Um, and I don't know if it's the Gen X in me, the work ethic that you don't take mental health days that, you know, push forward one foot in front of another, keep moving. I don't know, but I think it was the only control I had was that I can make that decision on who knew. And so when I went back to work, once again, they knew I had a basketball in my stomach when I left. They knew I took several days off, unexpected, not a vacation, not planned. And then I come back and there's no basketball. And so when people would ask, you know, welcome back, or, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, I had the flu. I knew, they knew, we all knew it wasn't true. But once again, I was not having that conversation and I just kept plowing through and I just looking back on it, I really needed to take the time to process that. I needed support outside of my husband who was phenomenal, my mom, my grandmother, my family. They were wonderful, but I needed extra support and I w worked with therapists that would have gladly assisted and helped. And I chose not to. Hmm. Marcia, if, if you're okay, I may throw a, a game changer here in, in the middle of our podcast. And <laughs> I know you wanted to talk about these two other losses, but I also don't want to rush through this. And I think it's a really good episode for somebody that has gone through this type of loss as well. Um, are you okay if we kind of park the other two and I bring you back for another episode later on? Cause I really, I've got a lot of questions. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Okay. And, and I just, I feel like we need to do this justice, justice. and mm -hmm. yeah, I really do. Cause there's, there's so much here. Um, and, and I know that this will filter into, you know, the future podcast of, of your two other losses, um, but I, I really, I want to hang here for a bit. Um, let me ask you, like, um, you were talking about your spirituality, um, your religion, and tell me more about that portion. Like it's, you know, there's, um, you made a conscious effort, um, you know, or not an effort, but just a conscious decision to have this baby, to baptize this baby. Tell me more about that side of things for you. Okay. Far as my religion, I'll go backwards to go forwards. Um, I was always raised Christian. 
I was raised to, you know, follow the, the Bible to, I was raised in church, but when I was in my probably early twenties, I wanted to look at different types of religions because I think so many times we get caught up with what our parents did, what our grandparents did, and we don't question why we do what we do as adults. Mm, Yes. And so I went on a religious journey and I wanted to learn different types and styles. And for me, um, I got very interested in Catholicism and, um, I really and enjoyed it. I enjoyed the community, the outreach programs that they did, um, their view on children and infants. Um, so therefore I converted probably late mid twenties, mid twenties. Um, and so I was the only Catholic in my family, but when I married, I married a Catholic and I married a Catholic family and I married into that. And so for us, it, it wasn't so much a denomination for me. It was the spiritual belief of how I felt. And mm-hmm. when I was going through the miscarriages and when I was going through each loss, I, I knew that there was a reason. And, and looking back, each loss was God preparing me for what was coming down the road. He was strengthening me. He was getting me prepared. And I didn't just go into a stillborn with not having any loss. He already started that loss grief coping mechanism for me that then got to be built, (laughs) unfortunately, with the loss of my daughter. But I, I learned so much of my spirituality and myself when I lost her. I didn't think I had the strength to choose someone else over myself. You know, I thought if you would have said, Oh, I'd give my life for someone. I'd be like, "Eh, maybe (laughs) would I, Mm -hmm. you know, but I was a mom. I was a mom in that ER and I was giving my everything to my child, just like probably any other viewer that's a mom would do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I do know that uh, something that gave me peace was the footprint poem that Christians typically know um, that talks about the two sets of footprints on the beach. And then the guy looks back at his life and there's only one set of footprints on the beach. And he questions God, why did you leave me? And Mm. God said, I didn't leave you. I carried you. Those are my footprints. And I think going through something like that, I, no matter how strong a person's belief system, I feel like they may at least for a moment feel alone in a lot of ways. And of course, not everybody, but um, I think a lot of times when we go through a trauma, uh, we wonder, okay, where were you, God, in this situation? And, you know, I, I challenge a lot of my clients. Um, I use something called a manual prayer sometimes with clients and it's okay. I want you to visualize a time where God was so close. You felt like you were sitting in his lap, get Mm -hmm. that feeling in your mind and then go back to a time of tragedy, a time of trauma, um, such as this and, and visualize, okay. Or, or pray at this point, God, 
show me where you were in this moment. And it is amazing what some clients see, like where they've not been able to see God before, but they can now see him, you know, in that ER or beside that hospital bed or just whatever it is in their life. And it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, an amazing tool that I like to use when people go through something where they didn't feel or didn't see God in that moment. Um, let me ask you to like taking a different direction here. Um, I, I talked maybe an episode or two ago. I can't recall um, who it was I was speaking with on this, but it's um, a lot of times we'll have you know, a marker or someone in life that we can see where they were born and deceased on the same day. And in little Berkeley's life, um, it, it is kind of a birthday and also the date of her death. Yeah. So do you celebrate that in any way or do you hold that date in significance for yourself? Um, absolutely. We celebrate it every year. Um, as the years have passed, um, you can also see our growth of when she was first buried. I could not really leave the gravesite. I was there daily. I was there for hours. I would take a towel, a blanket. I would sit there. That was my connection to her because I did not get to see her alive. So the gravesite mm. for me was my hopes and my dreams lost. And I wanted to sit there. I, I wanted to give, be the mom that I wanted to be. And so we also would, I, I eventually like maybe went once a day. Then I eventually got to every other day or, and it took me a very long time to, to know and separate the gravesite from my loss, but I needed that. How did you do that? Like, um, you know, a lot of times when I'm trying to help someone change a certain behavior, I'll, I'll talk about decreasing that or, or changing it up a bit. Um, but this is obviously your daughter, um, you know, and, and of course you always want that connection, but at the same time, there was something in you that said, okay, I can't be here every day. I have to, um, move forward, not move on, but move forward. Um, how did you, I guess, decrease that or I don't know. Tell me more about that. I, I think it was the amazing support system I had to be very honest. Um, my husband and I have been together 18 years, and the reason why we're probably together is because we are both so honest and we communicate with one another, and he saw it destroying me. He saw that that was making it worse, and you have to have these hard talks with people, and he said, is this the healthiest for you? What else can we do? to help you. And so one was, um, in the grave site that we chose is called baby land and there's all babies on this hill hmm. and they typically have rules at the grave site, but they don't really look at baby land. They look the other way. So they allow the mothers and parents and fathers and grandparents to do what they need to do for that grave site. So 
I remember decorating it and putting rock around it and just, you know, making it my own, like it would be her room or her nursery, but it was a gravesite. And so that helped me heal. It also helped me to then create um, a rose garden in my own home and a bench that a neighbor created for me with her name on it. And we set it near the rose bush and I could go out there and just see the wonderful blooming rose bush and that assisted with healing as well. Um, but I also in this timeline, a year and a half later, I had a beautiful, healthy daughter, um, my live beautiful daughter now. So mm. I do have two daughters, but one is an angel and then one is my live child. So I did, you know, for your viewers, I did get my beautiful, healthy child. That is awesome. Yeah. And I, I met her many times and, uh, <laughs> what a great, what a great kid she is, you know, honestly. And, and maybe I should say young woman cause she's, she's growing up so quickly. <laughs> yes, she is. She is. And so, and, and also to add for anyone with infertility, anyone is, I was told when I was going through it and I didn't believe it, but it's a season in your life. It's a season and you choose when that season is over. I did not give up easy. I'm a little hard-headed. I went a very long, I want to say it was almost seven years of infertility treatments and losses. And and, and then after having my daughter, uh, she was about a year and a half, we had a tubal pregnancy, which also can be very dangerous to a mother. <laughs> and we were not at life or death like we were with my daughter Berkeley, but we did have to have emergency surgery, um, unexpected with a toddler, um, with the tubal. And so we ended up with a total of nine losses, seven miscarriages, one tubal and one stillborn. Wow. So with your daughter now, does she ask questions or, you know, she doesn't get the, the pleasure of seeing or growing up with, you know, a sibling. Um, what kind of questions does she have and how do you go about talking to her about those things? That's an excellent question. And I had to learn as we went. Um, there is no book. There is no, you just have to know your child, know their level at that particular time and the question that they're asking. So I had to be reframed from oversharing and explaining the entire story to her when she was young. So when she would ask a question, I would just say it very simply. I would respond in a simple and pause. And then if she was content and ran off and went to play, then, you know, we stopped. If she came back and had another question or stood there with another question, then I would answer it or go a little bit more into detail. But I was very cautious of her age, of not allowing her to take that burden on that this was an adult decision that we had. This was for my husband and I to protect her from, but also to allow her to know that she had a sister. So there was a healthy little balance there that we needed 
to protect her, but also allow her to know it and not hide it from her as well, because there's nothing to be ashamed of, but that you do have a sister in heaven, but we needed her to not obsess on it or worry about her death or our death. And that's what we were concerned about is if we talked about it, um, at a full extent at a young age, she might have a fear of death. Sure. Sure. I know there was one other talking point I wanted to, uh, get in here. We're, we're a little bit, we still have a few minutes on the clock, but there was one thing that you were telling me, uh, back whenever we were talking before, before we actually, I guess, made a date for this, but you were telling me a story about a woman's Bible study that you were going to. And I think it was tied in with this story, if I'm correct, right? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. One of the nurses, I talk about the two amazing nurses. Um, one of the nurses, the younger one that had just started her career about two or three years prior, um, she sent a card to me in the mail um, approximately a month after my loss. And it was the sweetest card to, and then to open it and know, because I was isolated, I didn't tell people, but to know someone was thinking of me and it was my nurse. And so fast forward approximately a year from my loss, I walked into a Bible study. They, you know, asked if I wanted to join a new group at the church. They were all new. We we're all joining. And I recognized her immediately. It was my young nurse. And now, of course, I look different, you know, and I'm not at death's door. And, you know, so I didn't know if she would recognize me or not. And so afterwards, and of course, I know also the HIPAA and the oath that they can't address that with me. So I pulled her aside privately. No one could see us or, you know, afterwards. And I said, I'm not sure if you ever, you know, remember me you have so many patients like I'm not you know assuming that you would remember me but I did have a loss and I told a little bit about my story and she said I absolutely remember you unfortunately there are cases that we never forget and Mm. usually they're the ones that don't turn out well and she said yours will be one I will never forget and she said your numbers I still can't get over your numbers. And I think she even told me what my numbers were in my blood work. And she's like, you should not have been alive. Wow. Yeah. You know, she's like, I, I just don't understand (laughs) how that, how how you're sitting here talking to me and you're healthy and this all worked out because she said it did not look good. And that also helped me to live such a different life of everyone's like, oh, you're so positive. You're always so happy. You're always smiling. It's a choice. I wake up every day. It's a choice. Could I be bitter? Sure. Could I be angry at the world? Sure. But I could also look at it from hope, from what I learned from it, from the ability that I actually got to deliver her and carry her. A lot of moms that have infertility don't get to that stage. So Mm. I look at that as a positive. Um, and so when you almost lose your life, you have such a different perspective of why I'm here and what footprints am I going to leave on this earth? Kind of like I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, what am I doing each day and every day to make an impact? 
And so having your life very close to being taken from you and given a chance, which is what I had. God gave me a chance. I shouldn't probably shouldn't have been here. And so I'm going to make every day count. There's a reason why he has me here. Marsha, I'm going to tell you something that I usually just tell my clients, but we're getting close to time. <laughs> um, I, I really hate to, to uh, you've created an awesome story here for, for, I think listeners to visualize and, um, but before we close, and one thing, I want your commitment that you're going to come back on the podcast for another for another episode. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. And and I really, um, you know, I hate that uh, that we didn't even get into the other losses, but you know, we'll we'll be able to tie this all in. And um, but I want you to, I, I guess, take a final couple of moments here and just speak to listeners about. Um, this loss in your life and whether it's, you know, throwing out a helpful coping skill or just any final thoughts that you have that uh, you want to share with the listeners before we close out this episode. Thank you so much. Um, I feel that we just need to take each day, each moment for what it is and be intentional and really look and analyze where we are in our life. And I think so often we look at closets or a car and go, gosh, I need to clean that out. You know, I need to be more organized. I need to, but one thing we don't think about is our mind, the clutter in our mind, what is taking up space in our mind that we can release and allow ourselves that weight to come off of us. And one of them is me today doing a podcast and talking about my daughter, which I typically don't talk about because I don't want to bring anyone down, but I'm looking at it from a different perspective of looking at it that hopefully I allow someone to see that it's okay to be sad. It's okay if you turn against God. It's okay that you are having pain and hurt, but one day the coping skills will kick in. One day you'll breathe a little bit lighter and each day it gets a little lighter and a little lighter and you open yourself up to allowing that support and being vulnerable with it because you don't have to go through it alone. Awesome. One other thing too, Marsha, um, you know, if you want to plug your business at this point and uh, your, your practice, um, feel free to do so. I will have your email in the show description at the very end, but, uh, or in, you know, just, uh, it'll be in the show description. So, uh, but feel free to say anything there, you know, if, if someone does, uh, you know, relate to you, uh, and want to contact you. Oh, that would be wonderful if you related or, or know someone that is struggling or it be yourself that's struggling. You know, the first thing I tell all of my clients is there's absolutely no perfection on this side. You know, I'm still working through my um, puzzle pieces of life. And so that allows hopefully them to feel 
calm and ready to be around vulnerable with someone that they know is not going to judge them and has a listening ear. And so if anyone did connect with my story or connected with my temperament or style and would like to do some form of therapy, then I do private practice. I do virtual, I do phone. And so they could reach me through the email that you provide and I'd be happy to talk with them. Awesome. Well, Marsha, I can't thank you enough. Um, it's, it's interesting to, to hear these stories that, like you said, uh, it's not something that you share with many and yet you're sharing it openly on a podcast. And I know a lot of people will be blessed by this episode. Um, I I hope it was cathartic for you in, in a degree, just getting that story out there. And, uh, I, I really do look forward to our next, uh, episode at some point and, and we'll do that sooner than later. Um, but you know, I, I try to keep it right at an hour just so, uh, people don't get overwhelmed uh, with with too much at one point, but um, I, I definitely want to lean into these other two losses in your life and uh, and just bring you back very quickly. So, again, thanks for thanks for being on the podcast with us today. Absolutely, thank you. And thank you all for listening once again to the Grief Observed podcast. Um, again, if you want to be on the show like Marsha has been today. Please just uh, give me a shout, griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. And again, I hope you were extremely blessed by this episode. Take care.